Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the humanitarian crisis that didn't happen in Europe. Then we're going to get to the Russo-Ukrainian war and the Ukrainian logistical situation and questions of Zelensky's sanity. And at the end of the episode, we'll talk about NATO as a paper tiger. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news, which will actually be rapid-fire because we have a beefy episode today. So we have 16 people, including Ukraine's interior minister, dying in a helicopter crash in Kiev. And this comes amidst some rumors of a power struggle in the Ukrainian government, which have been around for a while, but have, you know, really grown in the focus as of late, because it's getting more apparent now. It's not just talk, it's actions and things we can observe. You have Z- disputes between Zelensky and Zeluzhny. You have, uh, uh, apparently, the assassination uh, of agents between different Ukrainian spy agencies. Rival Ukrainian spy agencies, where one agency will kill off one guy for even so much as doing his job. If there's a Russian involved, so it's 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 crazy. But you have the the Azov, the Nazis, and, and their prod their their beef with Zelensky, and his beef with them because they basically hold a gun to his head and say no negotiations. And that's one of the reasons why we don't see negotiations as well. There's lots of internal factors in Ukraine that prevent that prevent this from happening. You have tensions between. The intelligence agencies and the Ukrainian political and military leadership. And then you have disputes between the political and military leaderships themselves. It's just a quagmire. It's a quagmire. And for the people living there. It's a quagmire for the people in the government and in these agencies, let alone for us, who have gone over there and gotten in bed with these people and find it difficult to get out. Uh, I say it's easy. The interventionist uh, would say it's difficult, very difficult, because we can't just let Russia walk away with Ukraine, even though that's what the Russians are going to do anyway. So, you know. But uh, that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, in other news, we have the U.S. reaching its debt limit. Uh, we reached it on Thursday, and we'll see what becomes of that. Now, I say we should default on the debt. Because we're never going to be able to pay it off. That is apparent. Everyone knows that. And I say we bite that. I mean, if we're going to go into a recession anyway, and everyone's hyping it up is going to be like worse than the Great Depression, and with all the inflation, you know, running rampant, and the constant printing of money, and the high gas prices, and the high energy prices, and the high everything. The high cost of home and the high cost of living, not as not as bad as in Europe, but high by American standards. If we're going to go into this recession anyway, why not do it now? I mean, the, the 
why wouldn't you do that? It's not like you're interrupting a, prosper, a period of prosperity in the United States. You're literally just adding on to the recession so we can have a clean slate. If there was ever a time to default in the debt, it'd be now. Now, they're not going to do that, even though I say we should. Because, again, we can't pay it off. We're never going to pay it off. We're, we're 31, 32, somewhere in the 30s, trillions. I, I say we have to, we have to default. We, that's the only responsible thing to do. Now, it would have been more responsible not to be $30 trillion in debt. But when you're $30 trillion in debt, you don't borrow more money and call that the responsible thing to do because or else you'll you'll have to pay all that money well no you stop borrowing money you default you file for bankruptcy and that's what we gotta do and i say we take the student loans with it now i myself don't have any but if we're if it's a part of a broader default in the national debt then i don't see a problem with forgiving the student loans now if you want me to pay for them oh that's a different story but if we're going to default on the debt in general, why not throw that in there and give everyone the clean slate? Rather than bailing out big business like we did in 2008 and letting the people who need the bailout the least run freely and then leaving regular folks high and dry ass out in the wind. I don't like I don't want that. Now, will any of that actually happen? No, unfortunately, we don't have solutions in Congress. We have lobbyists. So we'll see what actually comes of this. And what's probably going to happen is unless those House Republicans show up again, which they might, they have the ability to. Uh, we've gone over how they can use that one vote necessary to call a vote for the speakership. They They can threaten that with McCarthy and force him to put hard caps on the debt limit, and balance the budget. Uh, they, pr they put a proposal to keep government spending at 2022 levels, and they said that'll balance the budget over time, and that we've even seen some of them come out and say that we need to start attacking the entitlements, the Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. Now, some would say those are not entitlements, those, that's just the workers' money, except the reason they are entitlements is because the money was stolen from by the government, t dipping its hand into this reservoir of other people's money that it was supposed to be keeping secure for your retirement. It dipped its hand in there and used the money from there to pay for all the other things that we didn't need, like wars. And overseas in Iraq, and Iraq again, and in Afghanistan, and in Vietnam, and Korea, and... and so they've, they've been dipping their hand in this pot, which is why the pensions, which are supposed to be, and, and this is the crazy part, because it's supposed to literally just be your money put away for a while, and then you, you can take it out when you retire. It's supposed to be just straightforward, but that just goes to show how you can't trust government with these types of things. They, they see the money, they say, oh, well, we'll just it's in our hands, so we'll take it. We'll pay it back later. And then... Here we are now, where it's coming time to pay that back, and they ain't got it, because they gave it away. I'm in favor of putting those types of retirement accounts into the hands of the people themselves, and letting them manage their own retirement accounts, instead of having it in the hands of the government. Now, you can use the government as a sort of 
streamlining mechanism to, uh, so that all the retirement accounts can have like a centralized place where you can transfer your retirement account from one job over to your new job, etc. You know, but it's your own personal private property. It's your own private account, not owned by the government, which means that it, it would be illegal for the government to dip its hand in there. I'm in favor of something like that. And I think that's a proper solution. I think that would be necessary to avoid this happening again, while also keeping around a policy that's supposed to be helpful. You know, I'm also in favor of people having the freedom to do with their money what they want. So it suits. But here we are. Those accounts are underfunded. They shouldn't be, but stole the money. Now they're underfunded. And we have to pay them back because people are retiring now. And we ain't got it. So now we're hearing talk about cutting back on those benefits because of the actions of the government in the past. We'll see what comes of this. Uh, we have Chris Hopkins set to become the new Prime Minister of New Zealand uh, as the previous Prime Minister had resigned. U.S. military officials are warning against U a Ukrainian offensive until Western weapons arrive and the Ukrainians have had time to learn how to use them. And that will wrap up the rapid-fire segment. And now we get into the meat in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start by talking about the humanitarian crisis that didn't happen. And hopefully doesn't. So over the summer, I was increasingly concerned about the energy situation in Europe. A concern that only grew as the sanctions on energy mounted, the Nord Stream pipelines were sabotaged, and energy prices went sky-high. Some politicians were even telling people to buy firewood. Then they got bright ideas about imposing a price cap on Russian oil, to which the Russians pledged to respond with complete oil embargoes on any participant of the price cap proposal. Now I thought the Europeans would freeze this winter. I thought it was going to get bad. I thought there was going to be a humanitarian crisis in Europe. That's what I thought. But here we are, approaching the end of January, and there has not been a mass freeze-off of European populations. Their energy prices are still sky-high, but they, they're they alive. And, which means that I was wrong. There was no humanitarian crisis, and... The way that they managed to do this is that they, they sacrificed their industry and the energy usage that came with that to keep their populations warm. And they bought Russian oil from third parties like India and like China. They may bank off of it, the Europeans paid it, but they managed to do it. They managed to do it, so there was no humanitarian crisis. And while it hurts my ego to say that, it certainly doesn't hurt my humanity. But I am left with questions about Europe's next winter. Because they, they struggled to get there before, but now you have Chinese demand, energy demand, coming in and competing directly with European demand. And it will make oil and gas even harder to come by this year. So, will they be able to fill their reserves again in time for the winter? I hope so, but I'm not entirely sure. 
I mean, last year, China was still under lockdown, and they only just opened up at the very end after the Europeans had already got their stockpiles ready. So, we will see, and this time around, I'll just withhold my judgment and simply observe. That's the situation in Europe. But now, I want to do a... I said we were going to talk about Ukrainian logistics, but I think it's more of a general update on the Russo-Ukrainian war. So, Western countries have begun sending tanks and armored vehicles to Ukraine, and there's there's been a whole drama over this. Uh, the, the, there's been, all the, the, the British are going to send their Challenger 2 tanks, the Germans are going to send the Leopard 2s, and the Americans are going to send the M1A2 Abrams, and the French are going to send their Leclercs. Now, there's there's been a whole lot of hype uh, that, about sending these tanks, and I should say it's been really a whole lot of talk. There's been a whole lot of talk about sending these tanks and these armored vehicles to Ukraine because no one's actually done it. And there's been a whole drama over this with most NATO countries pledging to send tanks, but then refusing to send them until Germany sends its Leopard 2 tanks. But the problem is that the Germans don't want to send their tanks until America sends its tanks. And everyone's sort of just dogpiled on Germany here saying, oh, we're not going to send our tanks until the Germans send their tanks. I'm, I'm not entirely sure why they've decided to do this or why they've decided to do this now. What does Germany send, choosing whether or not to send its tanks have to do with you? Because up till now, there had been no restraint in sending weapons to Ukraine. Everyone was more than happy to take their own initiative in sending Ukraine their artillery systems, their air defense systems, their their RPGs and their man pads and their rifles and bullets. Nobody was afraid to send equipment then. Everyone was more than happy to take initiative on the matter. But now, all of a sudden, they want to cede that initiative to Germany. And even the United States is doing this where it's like, yeah, we'll send the Abram... Well, Actually, America kind of doesn't want to send the Abrams, but, but we're going to send the M2 Bradleys. We're going to send those fighting vehicles, but we don't want to send them until Germany sends the Leopard 2s. I'm not certain why they're doing this or why they're doing this now. Maybe they want to sabotage any potential for a uh, German-Russian rapprochement in the future. I don't know, but that's what's going on here. It's, it's a whole drama. And it's a whole drama. And, again, the Germans don't want to send their tanks until America sends their tanks. <laughs> but amidst this drama, there has been some serious talk of Ukraine's logistical situation. A topic which, among my sources, has really come into focus here. And up till now, Ukrainian logistical issues have been primarily a how-do-we-get-equipment-from-point-A-to-point-B problem. But with all this equipment being sent here, and I guess the logistical issues we're about to talk about can be applied throughout the entirety of the war, but the issues we're seeing now is increasingly a compatibility issue, or more accurately, an incompatibility issue. So I want to talk about how all the weapons we're sending Ukraine might actually be hindering their war effort, if you can believe that. Because from what I can tell, the lack of standardization in the equipment that we and the rest of NATO have sent them 
the is really getting in the way. French equipment is different from the British equipment. Swedish equipment is different from the Polish or the German equipment. And American equipment is different from the old Soviet equipment that NATO members in Eastern Europe have left over from the days of the Warsaw Pact. And, as you can imagine, those differences mean something. And lately, we've been hearing about this difference of equipment and how it's making it harder for Ukraine to fight the war. Because those differences, they go beyond the model. It's not just, oh, the French have this type of tank and this type of artillery, and the Americans have this type of tank and that type of artillery, but they're both tanks and artillery. No, it's the machines themselves, it's the parts, it's the pieces, it's the capabilities, the durability. It's the par it's it's the means by which you repair said parts. And the things you can and can't replace certain parts with. The engine in one tank doesn't go with the engine in the other tank. The wheels on one artillery piece don't go with the wheels on the other artillery piece. The computer systems, they don't match up. And it those differences really start to stack onto each other. And that's what we're starting to see. Now, in hindsight, it, it should have been obvious that this would be the case. And it is obvious now, you know, in hindsight. But it was largely overlooked until now. And it was overlooked in that it takes different ammunition for different artillery pieces. And just going off of artillery pieces here, they require different parts when they need to be repaired. They also require different training programs for crews to use them. Uh, and then those, the, the, the tr proper training for these artillery pieces often takes months to complete with very little overlap in the training. Different systems also have different capabilities in their range, like, uh, well, I just gave away one of them. They have different capabilities, like their range, their durability, and the kinds of shells that they can use. Certain artillery are only designed to use certain shells which are made specifically for that artillery, so there's even less interoperability here. And you, and I, I can't stress enough that training part. It takes months to train people on how to use these systems properly. And then there's so little overlap with the in the knowledge that you need to learn how to use, say, a HIMARS versus a French Caesar. You, you could know everything there is to know about the HIMARS, but the second you go to the, the Caesar, oh, guess what? You have to start from square one now. Like, that that will hinder a, any war effort on any day. It will hinder any war effort on any day. Because you're, you're spending all this money to train these troops, and it's like, okay, great. You need a different crew to learn how to use each different weapon, even though they're both artillery. Well, I mean, what do you, what do you say? Oh, sorry, Commander, we're, we're under attack. We can't use that artillery because it's, <laughs> that's the British artillery, not the American artillery. I was only trained on how to use the German artillery. I guess we'll die. Like, that's no way to run a war. So you can, you can start to see how this is going to get in Ukraine's way. And those same issues with artillery also apply to tanks, to air defense systems like the Patriot, to RPGs, and even certain types of rifles and machine guns. So again, you can you can really start to get a picture in your mind of the logistical situation in Ukraine, which is poor and has been poor for some time. 
and is likely only going to get worse as Russia continues its strategic missile bombing campaign on Ukrainian infrastructure. So that getting things from point A to point B issue will be layered on top of the we have the equipment, but no one knows how to use it issue. We have the equipment, but this part is broken, and we don't have the replacement because the other artillery doesn't go with that. The other this tank tread doesn't go with that tank tread, so we can't replace them. And there's the incompatibility, the the lack of standardization, and the lack of an interoperability between these systems is really retarding the the Ukrainian war effort. And the logistics doesn't look like it's going to get better. I mean, it's only now that this specific issue is being brought into light as we're talking about all these different types of tanks being promised to Ukraine. If one of them breaks down, you can't use parts from the other tanks to build them, to repair them. The German tank doesn't go with the British tank. The American tank doesn't go with the German tank. And so on. But logistics don't seem to be the only growing problem in Ukraine. The other problem in Ukraine is in its leadership, and that problem runs on multiple levels. Now, we've seen the with a staunch and dogged refusal of the Ukrainian government to withdraw from certain positions. You see their refusal to withdraw from Seversk. You see the refusal to withdraw from Bakhmut as a whole, which is why they're defending all these areas around Bakhmut, including Solidar. They didn't want to, ref they didn't want to withdraw from Solidar either. They were forced to. And this refusal to pull out of this area is leaving many Ukrainian soldiers in an increasing danger of encirclement. And this is where the problems in Ukraine's government begin. Because you have disputes between Zelensky and Zeluzhny, which have broken out many times before over the course of the war, and Bakhmut is no exception. Now, over the course of the war, you can tell who is sort of, who's sort of having their way in the general Ukrainian strategy at that moment in time. Uh, Zeluzhny usually favors a more defensive posture with retreats as he deems necessary. He wants to bleed the Russians dry and give up ground to maintain his troops. Zelensky wants to push Russia out. He's usually more in favor of offensives and holding ground where, also holding ground where he deems necessary as well, but with the intention of later offensives. Because if you get pushed back 50 miles, well, now if you want to do an offensive, you have to take back the 50 miles before you can go to where you're actually trying to get to. So, you can, you can see that there is not quite diametric opposition here, but there is opposition. Uh, they do have that overlap of wanting to hold ground, uh, where Zeluzhny wants to defend and defend with retreat, defend with retreat. Zelensky wants to defend with attack, defend then attack. So there is that overlap of holding ground, but even then they they disagree on when is the proper time to stand your ground and hold it because oftentimes when Zeluzhny wants to do a retreat, Zelensky wants the troops to dig in, as is the case right now with Bakhmut and the towns around Bakhmut. And the times when Zelensky wants to go on the offensive is when Zeluzhny says, hey, we need to stop and defend and because Zeluzhny wants to build up a reserve of men. Zelensky wants to take the country back. So they, they've been at odds. But more often than not, they're able to hash 
things out and come up with something useful. It's seeming increasingly like they're not able to come to those uh, that common ground anymore, or at least that's what it's starting to look like. And I've downplayed these power struggles in Ukraine, along with accusations of Zelensky losing it mentally, because I thought these were sensational claims. But since I'm in the spirit of admitting to being wrong today, I'll say that I was wrong here as well. We've gone over some of the internal disputes and some of the players involved in Ukraine's government that are responsible for those disputes, the spy agencies and the inner, the inter-service rivalries between the agencies, the government, the politics, and the military. So, I'll instead, for this part of the episode, I'll get into that other claim that Zelensky, not Zelensky, that Zelensky is losing his mind. Uh, these claims, which I dismissed at first, because, again, I didn't take them seriously. These claims that surfaced back when Zeluzhny had an interview. That, no, goodness. Back when that Zeluzhny interview came out, well, I did an episode on it, Ukraine's top general speaks, uh, and Zelensky was president in that interview. But back during that time when he and Zeluzhny were making various comments to the press, uh, Zelensky, in his little piece, he had made statements saying that the Ukrainian people were preparing themselves for the retaking of Crimea in their minds. They were preparing their minds for the eventual capture of Crimea. Uh, uh, so in my mind, I just chalked that up to a simple misunderstanding where he was, you know, he was just trying to say that the soldiers were preparing themselves mentally for the battle ahead. I mean, the Russians, they might have withdrew from Kharkov a little bit. They might have withdrew from Kherson a little bit to consolidate their lines. But no one dealing in the realm of reality would ever assume that you were going to take Crimea without a fight. And in a fight, people will die in that fight. Uh, if you if you tell your troops to go take the hill and the people on the hill have a gun and they're shooting at you, well, some of you are going to die. And the soldiers, they're prepared for that. I mean, they, it's kind of what they signed up for. Now, a lot of them got constructed, so they didn't quite sign up for it. But they understand what being a soldier means, especially at this point in the war. But And so that, that's how I sort of rationalize that in my mind. And, you know, don't say I never give the Ukrainians anything. And But here my benefit of the doubt is uh, coming back to haunt me. And because Zelensky has given a new interview now... And in it, he said something very, very interesting. Because he was asked why he hasn't met with the Russians to negotiate peace. Zelensky, throughout the war, has presented himself as the one who wants peace. So it's a pretty sensitive, it's a pretty sensitive question for this guy who has presented himself as the peacemaker. And we and we've gone over why his peace proposals are unrealistic multiple times. So I'll digress there. But that's how he's presented himself over the course of the war. But the reason he gave as to why he hasn't sat down with the Russians for peace yet, uh, excluding March when they did, the reason he hasn't sat down a second time is because he doesn't know who he'd be negotiating with. 
Now you are now you and I might listen to that and go, uh, Putin. Duh, you're going to be negotiating with Putin. Who else would it be? But this is the kicker, and this is the part that got me. This is the part that made me a believer of these claims. Because Zelensky said it was unclear if Putin was alive or not. And I'm like, oh my god. This guy has actually lost touch with reality. Like, what... What, what 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 do I say to that? What am I supposed to say to that? He doesn't know if Putin is alive or not. I am not equipped intellectually to deal with this. I mean that's that that's just that's just a wild statement to make. Never mind that Putin at this point is just taking whole laps around Russia, and every time he stops somewhere, he does these these multi-hour-long Q&A sessions after he speaks for like an hour or two. He is verifiably still very much alive. So what is Zelensky talking about? What What's he talking about? It's unclear if Putin is alive or not. That's, that is a, such a bold statement to make. And a bold claim. But... Uh, and I, I guess I should explain that part of his rationale, you know, it, it's still wild to say, but at least part of his rationale was funded on another claim, which was that Putin is always in front of a green screen and he's not really there. That, that was sort of how he explained himself in his position. Now, the origins of that claim, that he's in front of a green screen, I believe this came from an address that Putin gave while he was standing in front of a group of soldiers. And back then there was some speculation about that being a green screen and that those soldiers were the same select number of people with the same movements, they were doing the same pre-recorded movements and they were just copy-pasted to form the appearance of a crowd on a green screen. And back then, I dismissed that as a sensational claim. I'm like, okay, okay, he's... He's standing in front of a green screen. Oh, I guess uh, Putin's rush is on the verge of uh, a collapse as well. And Putin's going to be ousted in this regime change. Oh, okay, he, he's going to be overthrown by his, his general. Okay, whatever you say. So I, I, I didn't believe it. And now, and now it's come back to get me again. Because here we are. And this guy Zelensky is saying it's unclear if Putin is alive or not. And he's using that. He's using that story uh, just sort of applied in a different context. That claim that Putin was in front of a green screen applied that in a different context to make this argument that he's not sure if Putin is alive or not. Uh, and, uh, and all of it just leaves me in awestruck wonder. Awestruck wonder. Like, I, to the point that I, I just... Uh, <laughs> I can't... Uh, like I said, I, I'm not equipped intellectually to deal with this. But I do have, I, I can tell you some of my concerns. I, I mean, I, I, just, I just can't help but come to the conclusion that this guy has lost his faculties. Like, this guy has real life taken a leave of absence of his senses. He has real life taken a leave of his senses. And in real time, he's... Uh, he's not quite in the same headspace as Hitler was. I won't. I won't go that far. At least not yet. That that guy, Hitler, 
he was he was maneuvering divisions on a map, divisions that didn't exist anymore because they had been destroyed by the Soviets. Zelensky, while he believes that certain positions are that certain troops are holding positions in locations where they verifiably are not, and this goes back to his refusal to acknowledge the fall of Solidar. He still hasn't acknowledged that Solidar has fallen. He still thinks his troops are in Solidar. And, well, he... They're not in Solidar. So while Zelensky believes this, that his troops are in places where they're not, he is, at the very least, still dealing with units that exist. But I fear that his increasing inability to come to grips with reality might get Ukrainian soldiers killed in a direct way. Like, he hasn't accepted the fall of Solidar. He didn't, he's not going to accept the fall of Siversk when that eventually comes around. So what reason do we have to believe that he's going to be able to come to terms with the fall of Bakhmut? Especially when he already can't accept that Bakhmut is in danger of being taken. He doesn't want to move his troops. And that, I feel, is going to get people, his soldiers, killed in a direct way. Now, in war, if you say, hey, we need you to take that hill. The hill has a bunch of enemies on it, and the enemies have guns pointed at you. And they start shooting you, well, they're going to die. Some of you are going to die trying to take that hill if you take that hill. The soldiers understand that. If you say, hey, we need you to defend this position even while the enemy is raining artillery on us, some of you are going to die trying to defend that position. But the soldiers understand that. So when I say he's going to get them killed in a direct way from his inability to accept reality, I mean that his refusal to accept that his troops are even in danger, like they are in Bakhmut, is going to push him to not move them. If you can't accept that your troops are in a position where they need to be pulled back, then you're not going to pull them back. He didn't want to move troops out of Solidar. He doesn't want to move troops out of Siversk. And he definitely doesn't want to move troops out of Bakhmut, which is why you even had these battles in Solidar and Siversk to begin with. But if those troops don't move, then they will be encircled and destroyed. And then you'll have uh, uh, another great siege of the war, second or even surpassing that of Mariupol, way back in, what was it, May and April, when Mariupol was encircled. They're going to have another siege, and those troops will either be killed, or they'll surrender. Some of them will surrender. In Mariupol, they ran out of food, and then they surrendered. The same situation might play itself out in Bakhmut. If he allows this to happen by not pulling the troops out. And he's going to lose more if he doesn't, because there are more troops in Bakhmut than there were in Mariupol. But he doesn't want to move the troops. He can't accept that they are in a position where they would need to be moved and moved backwards, not forwards, in an offensive. They will be encircled and destroyed if he doesn't move them. And at that point, I think we really will reach a point where Zelensky starts maneuvering divisions on a map, divisions that no longer exist. And Ukraine 
they do not need a catastrophic defeat in Bakhmut. That's that's the last thing they need. Now, make no mistake, they will be defeated in Bakhmut. But Ukraine, that defeat does not need to be catastrophic. As in losing an entire division or more in Bakhmut. Leaving open this massive hole in Ukraine's front line. Because then they'd have to move troops in from other places to fill that gap which would have the effect of compromising the defensive positions in just about every other place along the front line, weakening the entirety of said front line. I mean, we they're down to 190,000 troops and falling. Yeah, at least that's what they were at in December. So when you do the math, 10 months of fighting, you go from you lose 160,000 troops over the course of 10 months, and here we are in January, and that was just the number that we had at the time, and it obviously was falling by the second when they gave it out, so we'll just bump that up by 10,000. That's 17,000 men, combat-ready men, lost every month. And the fact that the number of combat-ready troops in Ukraine is not still 350, you know, 350,000, but with a large number of wounded and deaths, but you're still able to maintain that 350,000 number because you're bringing in troops fast enough to replace those that are being lost, but you're still taking those losses. The fact that the number, that the operational size of the Ukrainian army is itself dwindling and is not only being replaced means that the burn rate, the rate at which they are losing soldiers is faster, significantly faster, than the rate at which they're able to bring their reserves up to combat-ready status. Because they have men. They have reserves of men. Supposedly they have 700,000. But only 190,000 of them were combat-ready. So the fact that the number of combat-ready troops keeps falling means that they are losing their combat-capable forces faster than they can get their reserves of not combat ready men to be combat ready men so if, if we say that they're bringing in 3000 of their reserves every month and they're going from being raw recruits to trained and capable men that you can put on a battlefield and tell and give an order to they're bringing 3000 and ukraine is losing say 20000 of their combat ready troops that gives you a net negative 17000 Roughly what we're dealing with. And uh, I, I I put the number of recruits to trained divisions, uh, trained men at such a low number, because if I put it at a higher number, well, that implies an even bigger rate of loss. And uh, allow me to explain. Because if, they, if they're bringing in, say, 30,000 troops every month from their reserves, and they're, they're able to train them up into a combat-ready status, right? 30,000 troops every month are being brought online as combat-ready troops. But you're still losing 17,000 of your combat-ready troops every month. That implies a... Uh, well, that means you're losing 47,000 troops in total. So then you subtract the, the 30,000 that you're bringing up from the reserve into combat-ready status. You subtract that from the, the 47,000, and then you have a 
a net negative of the 17,000 monthly. So the bigger we bump up Ukraine's numbers of how fast they're able to train their reserves, the bigger the casualty number actually ends up being because we're seeing the net negative of their combat-ready troops. So by downplaying the speed that they're able to bring their untrained troops onto into combat-ready status, we're actually we're actually downplaying. We're actually downplaying rather than overestimating the rate at which the Russians are able to kill the Ukrainians. We're actually giving Ukraine the benefit of the doubt by saying that they're bringing reserves online at such a slow pace, only 3,000 a month, rather than a larger number. Because that implies that you're only losing 20,000 a month. So if you're bringing on 3,000, but you're losing 20,000, well, that's a net negative of 17,000 still. So the total losses are smaller when we assume that Ukraine's reservists are being made combat ready at a slower pace. So I'll throw those numbers out there for you. But when you look at how fast the Ukrainian army is dwindling, you see that in time, Ukraine is going to have these, they're going to have issues manning the line. And that's the real reason I wanted to throw all those numbers at you. Um, because the Russians, when they went in, they had a force of 160,000. Ukraine has now lost a number of men equal to the force that the Russians went into. The Russians have killed a force equal in size to themselves since they came in. But the Russians have routinely had issues manning the line when they only had that 160,000 force. And they took bringing in those extra reserves when they did their mobilization to start consolidating and really solidifying the line. They, they were trying to consolidate the line for months, and they only really got it down-packed once those extra few thousands of men started showing up on the battlefield. But with the rate that Ukraine is losing troops, it won't be long until the Ukrainian army, in terms of combat-capable troops, is whittled down to something equal in size to what the Russians had going in. Because if they're at 190,000 in December, mid-December, they're losing about 17,000 a month as a net negative. Well, that means that right around now, the almost at the end of January, they'd be around 173,000 troops combat ready. Which means that on the anniversary of the war, they'll be down to about 164,000 troops they'll have been whittled down to a force equal in size to what the Russians had going in. So from that point onwards, all those issues that the Russians had manning their line when their force was smaller, they did very well with that force, but they did have issues keeping the entire line together. So if the Ukrainian force is now grinded down to that same size, because the front line is the same for both of them, so if the Ukrainians get grinded down to that same size, they will be the ones having issues manning the line. They'll have all the same issues that the Russians have, except the Russians now have hundreds of thousands of extra men coming online from just from their first mobilization, where they brought in 300,000 reservists and another 80 or 90,000 volunteered for that mobilization on top of the 300,000. So the, first, the partial mobilization got them almost 400,000 extra bodies. And then you add on top of that the 
the general rearmament and remilitarization of Russia because they think that they're going to be in a confrontation with the West. And they're bringing online hundreds, an extra, what, half a million people on top of the, the other 400,000 that they're bringing up for the war, just the war. Russia's not going to have any issues manning their lines. Ukraine is about to start having issues manning the lines. So the last thing they need is a catastrophic defeat in Bakhmut. Where they'll have to weaken their entire line to cover the gap. Because you lose all those troops in Bakhmut. You lose thousands of troops in Bakhmut. Now the Russians can punch a hole straight through your line. And from there, it's a wrap. We could actually be witnessing the end of the war. Right now. Because if that happens and the Russians just start flooding into the gap, well, that extends the front line at a time when Ukraine is already about to have issues manning the line that they have. The Russians aren't going to have those issues anymore. They have hundreds of thousands of extra men. The Ukrainians are almost down to 160,000. They're just one month away from being at the 160,000 mark. Catastrophic defeat in Bakhmut is the last thing they need. And it's looking like because Zelensky can't reconcile with reality that his refusal to move those troops out of this danger, he is going he just might cost Ukraine the war in Bakhmut. And we could be witnessing that right now. But another thing that we're witnessing, and this is something I've been thinking about over the course of the week. We've been witnessing NATO as a paper tiger. Because as the war goes on, and you see the collective West get more and more and more, and yet more still invested into their proxy war against Russia, this indirect war, we've noticed something become more apparent. Which is that Russia is not a paper tiger. Nor is China, for that matter, although that will be proven later on. But this is a realization that we, and by we, I mean you, my lovely listeners, myself, the Duran, Jimmy Dore, the Grey Zone, you know, us folks on within this corner of the independent news and journalism space, those of us who think Russia's going to win, it's a realization that even we, who never really doubted that Russia was a major player, that we are only slowly coming to understand. And we're slowly coming to understand just how major of a player that Russia is. Like, I never doubted that they were going to win the war. I never doubted that they were a major player. I didn't think that the sanctions were going to work on Russia. But I never would have told you they'd be able to fight all of NATO at once and win. I never would have been able to say that. And I, uh, I'm someone who believed Russia had total dominance in the Soviet space. All the countries that used to be a part of the Soviet Union, the Russians could dominate all of them. And anyone who set foot in those spaces. Uh, that's, that was my firm belief. But even I did not understand just how major of a player that Russia was. And this is a realization that the rest of the news space, both... <laughs> Independent and mainstream will be forced to come to later on, probably after the war, if we're being completely honest here, after Russia wins and all the talk of 
a negotiated settlement and a rump state Ukraine get thrown out the window and you're left with a total and complete Russian victory over not just Ukraine but over NATO as a whole, that will be one hell of a realization for the rest of the news space. And I will pride myself on being right. At least at least that one time, you know. All these all these things that I've downplayed over the past few weeks are like really catching up to me in this episode. But uh but yeah, it's it's a realization that a lot of people will come to later on. But those of us at the bleeding edge of this realization, where we're witnessing a Russia that is winning a war against a NATO trained and NATO equipped army that was a three hundred and fifty thousand strong, and they did it with a force less than half that size. We're witnessing a Russia inflict on that force twice their size trained and equipped by NATO, we're watching them inflict 8 to 1 casualties on the Ukrainians. And they're achieving this with minimal air cover, minimal outside help. They have Iran and China and North Korea, but that's that's minimal. They're doing this largely by themselves. And they're doing this while outproducing all of NATO, while at the same time, they're building pipelines everywhere. They're building oil and gas pipelines to all the major populations of Asia. They peeled Turkey away from us with their gas hub proposal, and a lot of that damage was self-inflicted on our end as well. The Russians just ended up being the nail in the coffin. Oh, and by the way, they're doing all of this while under what was supposed to be an economic siege. The mother of all sanctions we, we hit them with, and I'll, I'll never let that one go. Because it was hyped up so much Oh, we're going to kick them off the SWIFT system, and that's going to cripple the Russian economy. We're going to turn the the ruble into rubble. And I, I didn't think that sanctions were going to do much to Russia, because we sanctioned them in 2014, and their economy grew. So when you sanction someone and their economy grows, that, that ought to tell you a lot about your policy of sanctions. And the sanctions never went away. They only ever increased. There was only ever more sanctions placed on Russia as time went on, up to and finally including the mother of all sanctions. We do that, we try to cripple them, and the Russians wake up one day and they go, oh, well, uh, this ain't that bad. <laughs> the currency took a hit, and then the currency was back by the end of the week. In fact, it got stronger. The Russians, immediately after they we hit them with the the swift, the mother of all sanctions, they... They did the gas for rubles and created a de facto petrol ruble and ended up st stabilizing their currency. Immensely so. Like, they had the countries, they had their currency subsidized by the countries who were doing the sanctioning. Because the Europeans are still buying Russian oil. We were still buying Russian oil. So we ended up, we ended up subsidizing the currency we were trying to destroy with our sanctions. And we ended up making that currency stronger than it was before. Because the Russians said, you want, the, you want the oil? You want the gas? Uh, you got to pay in rubles. Now cough it up. And we coughed it up. <laughs> but no one would have no said that. I never would have said they would do something like that. Back before the war. No one would. No one could have predicted this. So we're, we're really finding out just how strong Russia is. I'm pretty sure the Russians didn't expect this out of themselves. I think they're surprised by their own strength. We have witnessed Russia become an unsanctionable country that now has one of the strongest currencies to boot. Russia is not 
a paper tiger. We're seeing that. They are not a country with an economy the size of New York State or Italy. No. And they are not a gas station masquerading as a country. What they are is a country with an economy equal to or larger than that of Germany. And they, apparently they're more industrialized than any other Western country. I mean, it's insane that they are producing all of NATO in artillery. They are producing all of NATO in tank production and armored vehicles. We're arguing over who's going to send uh, 14 tanks to the Ukrainians first. The Russians have tens of thousands. And they can make more. They they are making more. Now, granted, not all those are modern tanks. But a solid 10,000 of them are modern tanks. T-90s. They are producing us. In, in everything. And our sanctions didn't work. So it's... It's an incredible realization to come to with just how strong Russia is. But then there's the flip side of that same revelation... And now, as we go farther off the edge uh, into the deep end of uh, speculation here, and actually it's not even really speculation, it's just we are on the edge of something that other people haven't gotten to yet. Because now it's just you, me, and the folks over at Rogue News. Because the flip side of that revelation, which is that Russia's not a paper tiger, the flip side of that is that it's us. The U.S., NATO, we're the paper tigers. Ukraine has shown us what a war between Russia and NATO would have looked like. And it doesn't go well for us. We would have run out of ammunition months ago. We wouldn't be able to repair our... We wouldn't be able to repair the equipment on a large enough scale to recoup our losses. We wouldn't be able to produce equipment on a large enough scale to recoup our losses. Then the Ukrainians have been fighting with our equipment, our tactics, our training, and our weapons, our ammunition. They've, they use up ammunition faster than we produce it. And the Russians still had them outgunned 8 to 1. Now, the Ukrainians can't properly use all the equipment that we're giving them as we discussed earlier on in the episode. So in a NATO versus Russia scenario, you'll at least have the French manning the French guns, the British flying the British planes, and the Germans riding the German tanks, and Americans operating the American air defense systems. So you'd have that bit of a force multiplier, where all the systems are used to their best, because the people who made them are the ones using them, and the, the, more importantly, the people who know how to use them are the ones using them. But all the equipment can, again, all the equipment could more easily be used to the fullest. But what the Ukrainians are showing us is that that equipment, even if it was used to its fullest, has little to no interoperability. Which is to say that the equipment doesn't work well together. Especially the air defense systems. They don't communicate, the radars don't communicate to each other, so you don't, you'll have two air defense systems locking onto the same target and wasting two missiles to stop it, 
instead of only one locking onto one target and the other just using its radar to track it. And when you don't have integrated air defense systems, you're limited to just the detection range of the one system because it's not hooked up to the others. You don't have that force multiplier of uh, this air defense system 100 miles back from the front line uh, can lock onto a target that the other air defense system at the front of the front line has locked onto, and it can use its missile instead of both of them firing the same missile at the same target. There's no interoperability, like what the Russians have, because the Russians are all operating on the same systems. So even if all of NATO was fighting together directly against Russia, you'd have those same inefficiencies. They wouldn't be overcome, because it's just built into the difference of the systems. These systems are not designed to work with each other. And that would be a problem that we would face. Now, I don't think we'd be losing 8-1 uh, to one to the Russians. Probably maybe more of a 3-1 to one or 4-1, to one, depending on how well this goes. But uh, you, the, those same problems would pop up. We'd have those same logistical issues. The equipment just doesn't work well together. And when something breaks down, you have to, if the German tank breaks down, you have to just send it to the German manufacturer. Because no one else has the parts to repair it. You don't have, there's no standardization. So when one tank breaks down, you need parts from that same tank to repair it. Which means that the British tanks cannot use their parts to repair the German or the American or the French tanks. And that's just the way that it would go. So we would have that same issue, even if, even though the, the equipment would be used to its fullest, because everyone using it would know how to use them. But then when you consider how fast Ukraine has gone through its supply of vehicles and ammunition, you realize that European member states, the Europeans at this point in the conflict, had we been in a direct war with Russia, all of them would have run out of tanks and armored vehicles. They'd all either be destroyed or damaged by Russian fire, and as we can see by these production figures on our side, we can't even re we can't replace the ones that we lose per permanently, and we it would take too long for us to repair the others. It would take too long. And, and that assumes that the factory itself doesn't just get bombed. That's something else we have to account for. Russia, just as we are not in a direct war with Russia... Russia is not in a direct war with us. Because if we were in a direct war, they'd just bomb the factories and bomb the repair facilities, and then that's a wrap. Now we can't produce anything. And then the Ukrainians, the, not the Ukrainians, well, the Ukrainians too, but the, the Europeans, they would literally just have run out of equipment by this point in the war. And the Russians would just be walking over them all. And we would be having issues keeping up. We have a large stockpile of tanks and armored vehicles, but so do the Russians. And we'd, at that point, be fighting the war by ourselves, because the Europeans would, they'd be out of it. So at this point in the conflict, all of, almost all of Europe would have been knocked out of the war by default, because they would have run out of vehicles. They'd all be destroyed or damaged. We would have lost. We would have lost in a direct war with Russia. All of NATO. And that's something that nobody could have imagined before. Now, if Russia was the Soviet Union, maybe they would have imagined it. But not modern-day Russian. People, no one thought that way 
about modern day Russia. But we're going to have to start thinking about it now. The world after this war, I, I do say, is going to be very, very different from what it was going in on a multitude of levels, economically, geostrategically. I mean, you see all this activity in countries making deals in local currencies and their own national currencies. Uh, you see the formation of, well, an alternative international system to what we have in the West. The, the Western run things. You have an alternative to the interna the international monetary systems set up by United States and Europe with BRICS. Excuse me. You have the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement. You have OPEC increasingly siding with that emerging world order, that multipolar world order. When this war is over, no one will look at America as the sole superpower. And that's something that I don't think anyone was prepared for at this moment in time. I wasn't. I did not understand that Russia... Because it's not just how strong the Russians have become. Understand that. It's not just how powerful Russia has become. It's how weak we have gotten. We can't produce artillery shells like what what country are we I, France in 1914 would not have had this issue right no no major power in 1914 would have had this issue even Russia would have out even <laughs> now, now that's that's actually a shame that's actually a damn shame even Russia in 1914 could have probably outproduced us in artillery production. And that that's just wild. But that's how far we have fallen. We fell, Russia rose. And it happened at the same time, so the difference is magnified by that. We would have lost this in a direct world Russia. The world after this war is going to be very different from what it was going in on economic and military levels. The, the balance of power in Europe is going to be radically altered by the realization of just how strong Russia is. Russia is going to be even larger by that point as well. And the U.S., well, not we and the rest of Europe will have emptied out our arsenals into Ukraine and it will all end up in Russian hands when Russia wins the war. Because remember, a lot of that equipment the Ukrainians can't use because they don't know how. So it's just going to sit in a warehouse somewhere until the Russians stumble upon it and study it. And then they become undisputedly the dominant power in Europe. They, we will be replaced as the dominant power in Europe when this war is over. On top of an emerging economic system spearheaded by China as well, with the Belt and Road Project. The Middle East is on board. The African nations are on board. Russia, Central Asia, they're on board. South Asia is increasingly on board. I think India is probably the, the major holdout. But at the very least, India is still on the same page as Russia and China in ushering in this multipolar world. 
Turkey has become a gas hub. The world is going to be so very different. And on a, in a material, tangible way, the world is going to be different. But also, in a more mental way, the world is going to be different. Because prior to the war, whenever there was any sort of speculation on a potential war between the U.S. and any other country, namely Russia and China, that's, that was the feature of most speculation, but others as well, whenever there was speculation on the U.S. fighting a war with somebody, the alliance factor would always be thrown in and U.S. victory in whatever war was being speculated on would then be treated as a given. It was just a given that we'd win because we had all these allies and, well, our economies collectively are bigger than the other guy's economy. Our militaries collectively are equal to or larger than their economy, our navy, and so on. But what we're seeing now with Russia besting all of NATO by itself is that those allies aren't aren't uh, aren't as strong as we gave them credit for. And I myself didn't give them much credit to begin with. I I openly refer to them as liabilities rather than assets. And even I didn't understand just how right I was. Liabilities rather than assets. Especially liabilities when we see how weak America itself has become. Because it's not just that the Europeans are weak. We are weak. We are weak. And because we are weak, our commitment to these other countries becomes an even greater liability because our our ability to live up to those commitments is so greatly reduced. It's not just that they are weak, it's that we are weak. And those allies that we would always throw into the equation whenever we talked about a U.S. war with any other country... Well, and I say we, you know, I'm talking about other people who speculate. You know where I stand on the, the Russo-Ukrainian war. You know where I stand on the Taiwan war. But when other people would have those speculations, the alliance factor would get thrown in, and then victory was just assured for the United States. But that was before the war. Because after the war, however, the decline of the United States, as well as its allies will be undeniable. We have found out with Russia besting all of NATO by itself that those allies, even an entire continent of them, they don't they don't carry as much weight as we thought they did, which means that they don't tip the scales in a conflict like we thought they would. And that's against Russia. We're bringing all of Europe with us against Russia, and Russia still wins. Who are we bringing with us against China? What, Japan? The Philippines? South Korea? Taiwan? Australia and Britain on a good day? That's that's not a, a winning alliance. That, that's not a winning coalition. That's a losing coalition. And that's exactly what we will do. We will lose. After this war is over, this Russo-Ukrainian war, that veneer of infallibility that 
the U.S. and NATO and all countries associated with a U.S. military alliance, that veneer of infallibility will dissipate. And NATO especially is going to be shown for what it is, a worthless and impotent institution, and all of our other commitments will be thrown into question. Because that decline of the United States will have been made so clear and evident to everyone in a way that even the Afghanistan withdrawal didn't expose. And it's because of how much we have invested into Ukraine. And how incapable we were in delivering these massive pie-in-the-sky promises we gave to the Ukrainians. We can't... Our production of artillery can't keep up with the Russians. All of NATO combined can't compete with Russia in artillery production or artillery shell production. Russia can outproduce all of us together. You're going through more artillery shells in a month than we produce in a year. You're, you're going through... But the Russians aren't having supply issues, but we are. The Russians are actively building up more. Their stockpiles are getting bigger while ours are dwindling. All these commitments get thrown into question by U.S. weakness. Especially NATO. Now, I for one am conflicted. Because on the one hand, I don't want America to go through that kind of humiliation. The, the kind that we're going to go through when this war is over. Well, well, yeah, when the war is over and as the war comes to a close. Because when that Russian offensive begins and the Ukrainians just start evaporating in front of them. That's, that's going to be such a terrible feeling for everyone who invested in Ukrainian victory. To watch everything that they had tried to achieve just be ripped away from them in real time. As crushed under the weight of a Russian tank rolling across the Ukrainian flats. But I'm conflicted. Because on the one hand, I don't want to see America go through that humiliation. But... And here's the conflict here. The destruction of, one, NATO's almighty self-image. And two... U.S. military credibility when faced against a pure power instead of a, a third world nation. The destruction of those two things will bring us closer to either the dissolution of NATO or a U.S. withdrawal from it. Either one will be beneficial for us in the long term. And that would mean a long list of other commitments we wouldn't have. Because if you get out of NATO, well, that means you're not defending. Let's run through the list. <laughs> we, If we get out of NATO, we're not defending Finland, Sweden, Norway, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Austria. We wouldn't be defending Croatia, Bulgaria, Greece, Turkey, Italy, Germany. Why are we defending Germany? We wouldn't be defending Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Luxembourg, Spain, Portugal. Oh my goodness, I, I almost forgot they were a part of NATO. I think they forgot they were a part of NATO, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> I think everyone forgot they were a part of NATO. And I bet the, the Spanish and the Portuguese are happy to keep it that way. 
We wouldn't be defending Britain, and we wouldn't be defending Ireland. We would be objectively better off. Canada can stay, you know, Monroe Doctrine and all. But that's a very long list of liabilities we wouldn't have anymore. And a country that we would no longer need to be at odds with. Because we wouldn't have those liabilities and those commitments, we could cut deals with Russia instead of trying to fight them all the time and getting humiliated like this. We could do that. It would be beneficial for us. And that would open the door to pulling out from more places. Now, there'd be those who'd say, okay, that's good enough. Now we can dig into where we are. But once you open that Pandora's box, baby... The people like to have their troops back, and the people shall have what the people want. There will be demands to pull troops out of the Middle East completely. Now, everyone will be on board with that, or at least a large enough majority of people will be on board with that. But then there's Asia, and that's where the so-called America First will stand their ground to die on Taiwan Hill. But, you know, the Taiwan War will fix that, and they'll be humiliated, and we can go home completely. It's a shame that it's probably going to take this string of humiliations. Afghanistan, then Ukraine, and then Taiwan to finally get us to go home when the choice was always there from the beginning. It's a shame that it's going to take that for us to make the right choice, which is to go home. It didn't need to be this way, but the fact that it's going to be this way means that we will finally go home. And we will be better off going home. We'll be, it'll be better off for us in the long term. With the dissolution of NATO and the dissolution of all these military commitments. So I'm conflicted. I don't want us to go through that humiliation. I know for a fact that Americans are going to die in the Taiwan War. I don't want that. I, I, I don't want anyone to die. But if I'm prioritizing people, I don't, I don't want the people from my country to die. But we don't need to be in these places. And we're the ones instigating the conflict. So I, I am conflicted. I don't, I don't want these things to happen. I don't want America to have to deal with that sort of humiliation. Or the fallout that we're going to have to deal with afterwards. Domestically. But on the other side. We will be better off not being in any of these places. So the humiliation in the long term will benefit us. As... Cruel and callous as that may sound, it will most likely be true. And you know what? You know what? I can accept that reality, and hopefully Zelensky can uh, accept his reality as well. But that, my lovely listeners, is the second time I've recorded this episode. But it was worth it to bring all this to you today. I spent a good deal writing out these thoughts and I didn't feel like going back and uh, explaining why I didn't have an episode today, so I bit the bullet. I've admitted I was wrong today. And I've admitted many other things that I was wrong about, which, you know, in in my defense, in my defense, why would I assume that Zelensky was losing his faculties why would I assume that the Ukrainians were having power struggles at a moment like this? Why, why would I assume that all these things that sounded hysterical at the time would come back in such a strong and real way? I, 
but you know what? I got I got it wrong. So I'll just set the record straight on this episode, and then it's smooth sailing from here. But alas, that's all I've got for you today, my lovely listeners. My throat is killing me. But it's the end of the episode, so we're good. That is, uh, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my uh, geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, and we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.